Well, I'll join the chorus and uh, wish all the mothers a wonderful Mother's Day. I'm going to start with a modern parable. Karina and I once decided to pool our resources and buy a combined birthday, Christmas, Mother's Day, Father's Day gift. We decided to get really good seats at a rock concert. We'd never done it before. It was Billy Joel. And we were in the second row of Rod Laver Arena. We could almost touch the stage right in the centre. The people on stage looked like people, not ants. It felt very good. However, I did notice that there were a few empty seats up near the front and the starting time was fast approaching. But then suddenly, dozens of people started to descend and fill these seats up the front, all these prime vacant seats. And one chap sat next to me and he was a little overexcited. He was in seventh heaven. He turned to me and he said with a wink, I bet you don't know where I've come from. (laughs) Well, my faith was rather blank, I'm sure, because he answered his own question. He just lifted his finger like this and started to nod. And I was wondering whether he was affected by a mind-altering substance, but, but no, no. Because Billy Joel hadn't sold too many of the expensive seats up the front, his promoter, who was aware of Billy's fragile ego perhaps, was inviting people from way up the back to sit in the front rows, as my new friend called it, the nosebleed section. So I resisted an evangelistic uh, opportunity to talk about the parable of the king's wedding banquet. But his second question, we were getting very friendly by this stage, how much did you pay for your ticket, he said. (laughs) Well, I said nonchalantly, I paid X, Y, Z, and he said, X, Y, Z? That's ten times what I paid, and yet here we are together, he said. (laughs) And and I started to feel a bit like the disgruntled sibling in the parable of the prodigal son. (laughs) Now, my new friend knew that he really didn't deserve to have this newfound status. He really didn't deserve to be there. He hadn't paid for it. But after a few minutes, he and I both got rather relaxed And we both started to act in a way befitting our new status. I'd never been up the front before either. The gift that my new friend had got, uh, there were no strings attached, but the generosity of the promoter was starting to rub off on him. And we both realised we had to act a bit differently in the second row. Um, We stopped talking to one another as the concert started. Uh, We both made sure our mobile phones were off. I always love to sing along, but I thought, no, there are people here who have come to listen to Billy Joel for a great price. I'd better be a bit quiet. Well, I'm going to leave that parable there for a moment. I'll come back to it. But we're looking at uh, this first chapter from 1 Peter, beginning from the 13th verse. But it's a great first chapter because it addresses two fundamental uh, questions for Christians. The first one is how is a relationship with God formed? And we often talk about concepts such as salvation and adoption and redemption and justification. The reading today really starts to ask the question, what do we do once that relationship is formed? And here we often talk about concepts like right living or sanctification or being holy. Peter knows that it is important to get these answers right. 
because there's been times in our history as a church or our life as individuals when we get it wrong and we act and live uh, not in accordance with really what God is expecting of us. We blur the categories of these two questions. I'm going to introduce you to one of my favourite Christian books. It's called Holiness uh, by J.C. Ryle. He was the Bishop of Liverpool and he wrote this little book about 140 years ago, but it holds up remarkably well. He just writes from the Bible and he's very direct and he's very confident and he's no-nonsense. And in this book, it's really a series of sermons, but he's writing in reaction to uh, an American evangelist who turned up in England in the 19th century called Robert Pearsall Smith, and Ryle didn't like what Smith was teaching. Here's what Smith was saying. You, re uh, you received a finished salvation through a crucified saviour by simple faith in him. You did nothing except take the gift. Works, effort, exertion did not enter into it. Well, so far, so good. But here's the part of Smith's argument to which Ryle took exception. So with sanctification, you must stop striving and trust Christ to do all in you as he has done for you. Just abide in him as a branch in the vine, living by the sap, the life energy that flows from the parent's stem. Let Christ live in you. How easy it is once you know the secret, how peaceful, how joyful and triumphant. Instability and sinful stumblings become a thing of the past. It is like a second conversion, a complete renewing of your life. In other words, once you've been saved, there is nothing more for you to do. Christ takes over, your life is on autopilot, and you enter this perfect state. Well, Ryle didn't accept this, and in his book, here is his rejoinder. Strange doctrines have risen up of late upon the whole subject of sanctification, being made holy. Some appear to confound it with justification, being made right with God. Others frit it away to nothing under the pretense of zeal for free grace and practically neglect it altogether. Others are so much afraid of works being made part of justification that they can hardly find any place at all for works in their religion. Others set up a wrong standard of sanctification before their eyes and failing to attain it, waste their lives in repeated succession from church to church, chapel to chapel and sect to sect in the vain hope that they will find what they want. Well, let's turn to the Bible. If you've got one open, we're starting at verse 13. And the opening word is therefore. And the word therefore is always a bit of a bugbear for preachers because it means we have to go back to the previous reading and summarise what it says so we can understand what I'm about to preach today. But to summarise that first section of Peter, note how it's about how a relationship with God is formed. We see words such as God's elect and chosen, new birth and inheritance, salvation and grace. Notice that just like the man at the back of the arena, our standing before God changes radically 
because of God's initiative and what he has done to achieve our salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's God who elects, God who chooses, God who gives new birth, God is the giver of grace, God bequeaths an inheritance. We don't deserve it, we didn't strive or do anything to achieve it, we don't have the will or the power to redeem ourselves. We simply accept this amazing gift from God by the faith he has also provided. We've accepted an invitation to come to the better seats. Well, now that Peter has described our new justified status before God, our reading today tells us how we are therefore to live our lives in response to that gift. And contrary to evangelist uh, Robert Pearsall Smith, we do have to respond in an active way. And I want to consider four points in our reading. The first will be use your mind. The second, live consistently with your new status. Be holy. Thirdly, remember the past when looking to the future. And finally, grow up in your salvation. So, use your mind, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Now, this phrase is accurately translated in the English, but it doesn't do justice to the original Greek, which contains a double metaphor. It's more literally expressed as, therefore, gird the loins of your mind. Don't you like that? Let's explore the concept of girding the loins of your mind. In Peter's day, when you had flowing robes and you wanted to do some physical activity, you tucked in the robes into your belt, that is, you would gird your loins, a metaphor, and it freed you up. You were able to do things, you were no longer constricted. But what Peter is talking about here in verse 13 is activity of the mental kind. So today, we might say, roll up your sleeves and start thinking hard. In other words, just because we have this new found status with God, we don't live our lives unthinkingly. The Christian life is purposeful and it's hopeful about the future. We are not spirit-filled robots. We're human beings. We retain the capacity to make choices. Accordingly, we have responsibility for our sanctification while at the same time the Holy Spirit is transforming our lives. Peter reminds us that we're to keep thinking and hoping about the return of Jesus when we will receive and experience the fullness of his grace and when his work as judge will be fulfilled. As we think upon these things, Peter says that our thoughts will start to dictate our actions. So despite the trials and the sufferings and the persecutions, we're keeping our focus on the race to be run and the prize that is already assured, as Paul would have it. We're to be sober-minded. We're to be sharp. Remember that Peter is writing to a persecuted people. As Jesus taught, we are sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, we have to be as wise as serpents, while harmless as doves. Through thinking rightly, we become more obedient to God's will with the Spirit's help. 
And if we become more obedient to God's will, we will then strive to reject the passions and the sins of our former life, again with the Spirit's help. And if we strive to reject the passions and sins of our former life, we become holy, again with the Spirit's help. Well, you recall my newfound friend at the rock concert, uh, his new status in the better seats did not just result in joy, but also a realization that he had to act in accordance with that new status. He actually became a better concert goer. <laughs> and this, this girding of the loins, this is not an isolated incident. We, we are a community. Peter's letter is expressed to us. We're supporting one another in our small groups, in our families, in our church. It's a corporate endeavor. Well, let's move to the next point. Live consistently with your status. Be holy. You may have heard the concept that the kingdom of God uh, is here already, but it will only be fully realized uh, upon the return of Jesus. We're in a period of the now, but the not quite yet. And something similar applies to holiness. We are, in a sense, already holy, but we continue to be a work in progress. That is, we're continually being transformed into Christ's likeness. We're holy in one sense because our status has changed. In God's eyes, we're deemed to be holy. We're clothed in righteousness. We're justified through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. The price has been paid. We're redeemed people. Sin is no longer our master. We follow Jesus as king. That's our new orientation. We've been moved to those best seats. So as you look around your, this morning, uh, you will find that you are surrounded by holy people. Uh, praise God. Give them a wave. Well done. But don't get carried away. Sorry to break it to you, but none of us is morally perfect. We all still sin. We're a work in progress. We're being perfected by God's spirit and we rely on his forgiveness. When commenting on the phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, the theologian Douglas Harrick had this to say, the holiness of God's people is rooted first of all in God's very own being, then in God's action of calling and setting apart a people for himself. And finally, in God's people reflecting God's character and action in its life before God and among the nations. God's people must become holy because they are first made holy by God who himself is holy. Becoming holy is a matter of being transformed by, conformed to, and sharing in the prior action and character of God. And that in turn is a matter of obedience and the right orientation of desire. Peter himself is a wonderful example of a man whose status changed after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He was deemed holy by God and he starts to act accordingly. You had throughout his life, he was also being transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more holy, a process of sanctification. And you only have to look at his life. There he is denying Christ before the resurrection, cowering, fearful in those first days. 
But then we look at the uh, speeches on the lips of Peter in the book of Acts. Here is somebody who has clearly changed. Here is a man uh, of courage and authority. He's girded his loins to think hard and do God's will. And yet he's not perfect. He's not sinless. We know from Paul's letter to the Galatians that Peter does cave in to peer pressure at the expense of the gospel message. Like us, his life is a work in progress. Well, my third point, remember the past when looking to the future. We're now at verses 17 to 21. I think the Christian journey is a bit like driving a car. We have our eyes on the destination ahead, but we're constantly looking in the rear vision mirrors. We've got this anticipation of future glory, but we're mindful of what God has done for us in the past. And it's those past events, the cross and the empty tomb, the effects of which are still eternal, in which we put our trust. We have been redeemed at a great cost, the precious blood of Christ, a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus says, uh, Peter says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world to die for us. That is rather humbling. That should motivate us as we journey as sojourners in a foreign land, trying to live lives worthy of that redeemed status. The ancient Israelites were always being told, look back, remind yourself about how God has acted miraculously in your past and your history. And it gives us confidence for the trials and the tribulations ahead. My friend at the rock concert would occasionally look back at the back of the arena, his old seat, not wistfully, but as a reminder of the promoter's generosity and how far he had come. Another motivation is that we are to look forward in anticipation of the last day. We know that God, who is our Father, will be an impartial judge. There is no favoritism. Therefore, we should be living in reverential awe. Even though we are redeemed and justified, we will be judged on the last day. Our sins will be exposed, but thankfully forgiven. And we will realise just how much God has done for us as we enter into glory. Well, final point. Grow up in your salvation. My new friend at the arena and myself, I should add, we'd become mature concert goers by the mere fact we were there in the front. We were different because we had an elevated status. And we're called to do likewise in our Christian life. It's a process of change and conforming to the will of God. As I've said before, it's a lifelong process. It's only fully realised when we come face to face with Jesus. In the meantime, says Peter, we're likened to infants, craving and being nourished by spiritual milk, God's word. And yes, we occasionally stumble, but over time we should become steadier on our feet. We'll never be perfect in this life, but we gird the loins of our minds and we consciously and willingly allow the spirit to transform our lives. And as a community, and that's who Peter is writing to, we must remember that our fellow travellers will also stumble from time to time as the Spirit is transforming them. The flesh is weak, but the Word of God has power and gives life to new believers. 
And so accordingly, we need to be gracious and forgiving as we stumble along and get a bit better. As Peter says, we need to love one another deeply from the heart. Well, let me conclude with some wise words from Bishop Ryle. He who supposes that Jesus Christ only lived and died and rose again in order to provide justification and forgiveness of sins for his people has much to learn. Whether he knows it or not, he is dishonouring our blessed Lord and making him only a half-saviour. The Lord Jesus has undertaken everything that his people's souls require, not only to deliver them from the guilt of their sins by his atoning death, but from their dominion of their sins by placing in their hearts the Holy Spirit, not only to justify them, but also to sanctify them. He is, thus, not only their righteousness, but their sanctification.